So this morning, we will be looking at Romans 8, as Jake shared. Uh, But first, I want to read from Matthew chapter 7. In verse 24, it says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. One day, church, we're going to be with the Lord, free from sin, from pain and suffering. But is that the case in our life right now? No, we're not, we're not there. While we're here, we're going to face trials, we're going to face suffering, and a lot of times when we do, we're shaken. Sometimes we get shaken to our core, and sometimes we might even be tempted to walk away from the Lord or from His church. My brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all He does, as I shared, and we need to be the wise ones who build their house on the rock, right? And that means we're building our house on God's Word and what He says here. So I want to share some Scripture. We're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture this morning. Um, But my hope is that it is an encouragement to you and that it will help you stand when the storms of life come raging, because they will at some point. So we're going to start in Romans. Um, our, Our main verse for today is verse 28, but I'm going to back up and give some context and just kind of pick up where Jake left off, just so you see what's leading up to this verse. It says in Romans 8, we'll just pick up right where Jake uh, started, verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's some of that suffering that I was just talking about. He says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the last couple of years at our youth group, IGY, uh, we have been going through the book of Romans together. And uh, the past couple of months, we've been right here in this passage. Um, So just you guys heard the context, um, but those verses, they're talking about how we've been adopted into God's family. It's talking about our inheritance, how we're going to suffer, but it is also talking about our hope. So there is going to be suffering, but here's the hope we have. Um, Hope in a future to come, hope for heaven in which we're going to be with Jesus forevermore, no more sorrow or or pain. Talks about how that hope is going to sustain us through the trials. There's a promise that the Holy Spirit's going to help us pray when we are weak. And then we get to verse 28. And it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And this verse is often looked at as one of those, those things to quote maybe when bad stuff is happening. And also maybe the verse that people don't want to hear quoted to them when bad stuff is happening, right? It's both of those. But church, let me tell you, if you can get a hold of this truth that we see in the scriptures, it will be a rock for you. When the storms come against you, you will not be swept away. Hold on to the truth of God's word. God causes all things, he, he works all things together for good. For who? Those who love God, who have been called according to His purpose. So, some people will say, you know, you look at this and it's saying bad stuff's going to happen, but, you know, God, He's skillful enough. He knows how to make it become something good. Um, I don't believe that's what the Scripture here is saying. I don't believe it's what Scripture teaches. Um, I believe Scripture, as, as we'll look at today, clearly shows that God is the one orchestrating, causing, and working all things. And he's not doing it because he thinks, you know, oh wow, let's, let's put some pain on this person. That'll be fun. That, that's not what's going on. He's doing it for our good. He's doing it for your good. God is sovereign. He is in complete control of the universe. He doesn't let random things happen to you. He doesn't let other people just do whatever they want to to you and then somehow figure out how to twist it into something good. He is in complete control over everything. Now, if God was not good, this would be terrifying. If, if any of us were sovereign and in complete control over everything, it would be bad. Um, you don't want someone who is not good to have all power and authority and be in control of everything. But God is good And because he's good, because he loves us, this is good news for us. God knows what is best, and he knows what is actually good for us. So this morning, I want us to look at some examples of God's sovereignty in Scripture, starting all the way back in Genesis. You can turn to Genesis chapter 45. So I think most of you here are probably familiar with the story of Joseph, right? Yeah. One of my favorite, favorite stories in the Bible. Um, 
We're just going to look at a couple of verses, but in short, if you're, if you're not familiar or you need a refresher, Joseph's brothers, they, they got really jealous of him. They plotted to murder him. Then instead they decided to sell him into slavery and make some money off of him. Um, after that, he got falsely accused of things and he wound up in jail. And eventually he ended up being promoted to the highest position in Egypt other than Pharaoh. And through that, God used him to save many lives. But, so God did that, but Joseph's brothers and many other people along the way committed evil acts against him. Both of those things were happening. Let's read uh, starting in verse 4 of Genesis 45. So this is when Joseph uh, reveals himself to his brothers. It says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God, God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hopefully you caught that as we were reading it. Um, it was not the brothers that sent Joseph. It was, it was God. God had purposed this for Joseph's life, and he used his brothers and everyone else to accomplish his purpose. But it was God who did it. And if we read a little bit further, Joseph reiterates this in chapter 50. In verse 15. So Joseph's brothers, they were afraid after their dad died that Joseph was going to pay them back for evil. They're like, oh, he didn't want to do it because... You know, he was thinking of, of our dad. But now that he's gone, he's really going to get us. And uh, verse 15, When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. So they're, they're lying. <laughs> okay. Uh, say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. That's true, right? They did evil to Joseph. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So evil on the part of Joseph's brothers, good on the part of God, and the same, the same actions happening. There's an agency we see here on both parts. God does not excuse the sinful action of Joseph's brothers, they're accountable. They're responsible for their sin. And yet God meant this to happen. He meant for Joseph to go to Egypt. And this was the way which Joseph was supposed to go. 
And if you look at the book of Job, which we'll be turning to in a moment, um, Satan, and again, in some summary here, Satan comes before the Lord and God initiates and says to him, have you considered Job? <laughs> like, oh, thanks God. Um, how he is upright. And so Satan, who is the accuser, says he only fears and worships you because of all the good things you've given him. And so God allows Satan to take those things away. Job loses everything. But then in chapter 1, verse 22, it says, through all of this, Job did not sin nor blame God. So he's not blaming God. So um, God, again, Satan comes before him and God's like, consider my servant Job again. And uh, he's like, look at how upright and righteous he is. And Satan says, well, that's because you only took his stuff. If you take his health, he will curse you. So God, again, allows Satan to attack Job's health. Job sits in misery. Um, his wife even says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, the book of Job is too long to go through, although if you haven't read it recently, I encourage you to do so. It's very good. Um, but eventually, God speaks to Job as he's trying to figure out what's going on. Job's trying to figure out. And, and God says, who are you to question me? Like, what kind of wisdom do you have compared to me? And I think we can all relate to that if, if we're honest. Sometimes we're like, God, what are you doing? God knows what is actually good for us. He knows everything so much better than we do. He has actual wisdom. And so as, as, Job, and, uh, as Job and God are having this conversation, you can turn to chapter 42. And in verse 1 of Job 42, after God has answered Job, Job says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. He's, he's declaring the truth here. God is sovereign. That's what he's saying. I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is declaring here, God can do all things and no purpose of his can be thwarted. God is sovereign over all. We don't always understand what he is doing or why he's doing it. I, I would say often we don't understand uh, what he is doing or why, but he is doing it. God is doing it. And if you don't know the end of Job, God actually restores Job and it says he blessed his latter days more than the beginning. God was working all of those things for God's own glory and for Job's good. Amen? So before we go back to Romans 8, I want us to look at a, a few more passages. Um, turn to 2 Corinthians.
going to go to chapter 12. So in uh, 2 Corinthians, in chapter 11, um, Paul wrote about all the horrible things that he had been through. I believe it's uh, when he starts talking about his sufferings as an apostle. Um, he talks about how he was beaten and he was stoned and he received five times the 40 lashes minus one, right? Um, all the different dangers. Paul went through a lot. You can read it, I think it's verses like 23 through 29 in chapter 11. So Paul had been through horrible suffering. And then in chapter 12, he talks about how he was caught up into paradise. And then he says this in verse 7 of chapter 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, a couple of things to notice here. Um, Paul was given this thorn. We don't know exactly what this thorn was. Um, it might have been a physical problem. Some, some people think it was a physical problem with his eyes. Could have been something else. But it was something bad enough that he described it as a thorn in his flesh after he mentioned all those other sufferings he had, which were pretty terrible. He's like, that all happened to me, this is the thorn in my flesh. So it was probably pretty bad. Um, but this thorn, it was given to him. And the context strongly implies, I mean, it says that it was given by God. Okay, this thorn was given by God. And yet he also calls it a messenger of Satan to harass him. So how do those things go together? How is it like it's given by God and it's a messenger of Satan? Um, church, is Satan subject to God? He, he is. Does God have all authority over Satan? He does, right? So it's just like Job. Like He couldn't do anything unless God allowed him. As John Piper likes to say, Satan is on a leash, okay? He can't do anything that God does not allow him to do. He can do nothing without God allowing it. So God appointed this thorn in the flesh to Paul, and it was also a messenger from Satan. Satan intended to make Paul as miserable as possible to try to stop him. Like, if I can just make Paul miserable, maybe he'll stop spreading the gospel. Um, he thought that this thorn would accomplish that for Paul. But God intended the thorn for another reason. He knew that Paul needed to be kept humble. Uh, Paul was like the apostle of the apostles. He was caught up into paradise. He, he saw Jesus on the Damascus road, right? There's a lot of things there that can make him prideful and conceited. And, and God knew he needed to be kept humble and dependent. And so God meant for this to accomplish that and to make Paul truly strong. Paul pleaded with the Lord to take it away three times, and God said, my grace for you is sufficient. 
He was teaching Paul how to rely on him for strength instead of Paul relying on his own strength. This was both for God's glory and for Paul's good. What happens when we rely on our own strength for stuff? It doesn't go well, right? It's like it doesn't go well. So God was doing this for Paul's good and for God's glory. Let's turn to Acts chapter 4. So the, the background of the verses, before we read them, a uh, little summary. Peter and John, they heal someone. Then they get called before the Jewish council. They're threatened. Um, they, they're told not to speak anymore about Jesus. And Peter and John, they respond by saying, we must obey God rather than men. And because of all the people around that you know, had seen what had happened, uh, they decided to let them go after, after threatening them more. We're going to pick up in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. It says, When they were released, Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here, they lift their voices together, again, we see, to the sovereign Lord of all the earth. And they quote the Old Testament, in which David is talking about people and nations plotting and raging against the Lord, but in vain, because God's sovereign. Like, what, what can a nation do that God does not allow them to do, right? He's sovereign. And then we get to the main verses I want us to look at, verses 27 and 28. We see that Herod and Pilate they were against Jesus. So, so were the Gentiles, and so were the people of Israel. You remember in the Gospels, and we'll be getting to them soon, I'm sure as we approach Easter, um, the Jews shouted to crucify him, right? Crucify him, crucify him. Herod and Pilate, they were involved, and they sent him to be crucified. Were they all guilty of, the, of, of their actions? Yeah, they're guilty. They killed Jesus, right? And I don't think, when you, when you think of sins, there's not really anything worse than killing the Son of God, okay? That's, that's about as bad as you can imagine. And Judas was involved too, right? Judas betrayed Jesus into their hands. Luke chapter 22 says that Satan entered Judas. And so working to kill the Son of God... There were the Jews, there was Pilate, there was Herod, there was Satan. They put a crown of thorns on his head, they gave him the lashes, they nailed his hands into the cross, trying to make him as miserable as possible, trying to extend his suffering as much as they could. But verse 28 says, they did this to do whatever your hand and your plan 
had predestined to take place. Church, what happened on the cross? Jesus died for our sins. He suffered and he was beaten and he was killed for us. The gospel, the good news, was born out of of that right there. Satan and the people here meant this for evil. They thought they were winning, thinking they could cause as much suffering and misery as I said as possible. They participated, but God's plans are what took place. It is through this terrible thing that happened that we are redeemed and we are saved. Salvation is offered to everyone here today because of what Jesus did on the cross. And there's agency on like the people's part and on God's part. God predestined this to happen, this worst sin. God did not sin. Those men were responsible, as Scripture clearly shows, but God predestined it, and He created the gospel with it. it. The gospel came into being through both the predestined human sin and satanic opposition. And so, like Paul, like Job, like Joseph, you may have painful things happening in your life. You might have a thorn in your flesh. You might be miserable. You might be suffering. And Satan is for sure trying to trip you up. That's for sure. He's definitely trying to get you to turn away from Jesus. But God is intending this for your good and for His glory. You need to ask ask yourself, am I going to embrace Satan's attempts to make me miserable or embrace God's plan to make me holy? Because that's where things are going here. God works, He plans, He predestines all these things for our good and for His glory. And we can keep looking at passage after passage, but I want us to go back to Romans 8. In Romans 8, as you go through Romans, you see God is the one who raises from the dead. God is the one who saves us. God is the one who calls us. It's It's a theme throughout Romans. And we see the same thing here. He has called us, And he has called us for a purpose, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, or to glorify God by enjoying him forever, you could say. God wants us to become more and more like his son Jesus, who again suffered. We get to verses 29 and 30 here after verse 28 in Romans. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son. God uses these trials and these sufferings to make us more like his son, Jesus. In James, it talks about trials and suffering, we're to consider it pure joy, right? Why? Because there's sanctification happening. He's producing perseverance in us. Hebrews says that God disciplines those he loves. He's, he's conforming us into the image of his son. That's what he's doing. These things shape us, and they make us more like Jesus. And so I, I just want to look at two more examples of, of sort of God's sovereign plan here and, and seeing it unfold. Um, first, let's go to Acts chap- at the end of 7, beginning of 8. 
So, at the end of Acts 7, if you're not familiar, um, this is the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was one of the deacons in the early church. Um, He was described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, full of God's grace and power, one who was doing great signs and wonders. And he could not stop preaching God's word. I am sure that he was looked up to and loved by his church. Uh, The church, just like we do here, the church chose him to be a deacon, right? Um, So he stood up to proclaim the truth one day, and the Jews got enraged, and they stoned him. And he became the first martyr. I want to pick up this story here in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So, at this point, there were thousands of families of believers in the city. Uh, If you read through the beginning of Acts, there's at least several thousand families of believers uh, in the city. So, if you can imagine this for a moment, Stephen gets stoned, and that same day, the church is ravaged. So, there's human sin and satanic opposition to the gospel, to worship, and I'm sure the church probably was pretty scared, okay? They were suffering. Thousands and thousands of Christians were forced to flee from their homes on the same day that Stephen was martyred. I I was thinking this morning as I was reading this, um, you know, sometimes David Snyder goes down to the abortion clinic and uh, preaches the gospel down there, and he's one of our deacons. So if you could imagine for a moment, sorry, David, you're going to (laughs) die. If you could imagine for a moment, David's down at the clinic, he's preaching the gospel, and people get upset, and they murder him. And then not only do they they kill him, they come, and they come through, and they start like going house by house to all of our families here, and families in other churches, and we just literally have to run, like you're fleeing. That's the picture that's like going on here. And I'm sure the church was asking, like, God, what are you doing? And I'm sure we would be asking the same thing, right? Like, like, God, what are you doing? He was out there preaching the gospel, and you let him get killed, and now we're all, like, running for our lives. You'd be asking yourselves, God, what are you doing? And I think that happens a lot of times in our lives. We see stuff happening. There's afflictions. There's trials. There's troubles. and, And we ask, like, God, what are you doing? What are you doing right now? Now, in Scripture here, if we go forward to Acts 11, we can actually see what God was doing. In Acts 11, verse 19, Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Gentiles, 
also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is like the first great spread of the gospel in the world, the gospel going beyond the Jews. The church hadn't been obedient uh, in the Great Commission, and God moved them out. It was for the good of the church, and it was for God's glory that he sent them out. And uh, when we hear these stories, we can read them in minutes. Okay? You can read the story of Joseph in minutes. You can read what's happening in Acts in, in minutes, right? But this is taking place over the course of people's lives. So we get the advantage of looking at this and saying, oh, we can see God's sovereign plan because we're looking into the past. They were living it. They were, how long did Joseph live that before he, he got to where he was able to be saving lives, right? So you might be in the, in the midst of something right now, and you're like, I don't know what you're doing, God. I don't know how this could possibly work for good and for your glory, because you're, you're in the middle of it. So when we look at Scripture, we need to keep in mind, like, those people were in the middle of it just like you are. And God worked it for their good, and for his glory. So whatever, whatever you're in the middle of right now, God is doing that same thing. I want to look at one more, one more passage before we, we head back to Romans to close up. Acts chapter 16. So in this passage in Acts 16, Paul and Silas, they drive a demon out of a girl. Hallelujah, right? They're coming along, they're like, we're going to set this girl free. And then they get beaten and put in jail for it. Okay, uh, if you can imagine that, if you were to pray and set someone free from demon demonic possession, and then people get so mad that they attack you and take you to the authorities, where you get beaten with rods and thrown in jail, you'd probably be asking, like, God, what in the world? Like, I'm trying to be obedient, and now I'm in jail and I'm beaten. Like, what are you doing? You'd probably be a little upset with the Lord. Amen. I, I, I know that I'd be upset. Unfortunately, that. I would probably be complaining, honestly. Um, I don't want to be like that, though. I, I want to be like Paul, which if you read in verse 25, after all that happened, here's Paul's response in jail, fastened with, in the stocks. says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So his response is to worship and praise the Lord and sing to him. I want that to be me. When stuff happens, instead of complaining, like, God, what in the world are you doing? Like, why, why, why me? I want to respond with worship. I want to respond with worship. And as we see as the story goes on, earthquake sets them free, Right? And then they don't run because, again, they're like, you know what? God had a purpose for us being in here. Um, they care about the jailers. They end up sharing with the jailers, and they trust in Christ for God's good and for their glory. Amen? Church, God's word is true. It is impossible for him to lie. If God could lie, why would we trust him? We wouldn't want to, right? God is sovereign. He is over all things. 
And God is good, and he loves us. All these things we see in his word. If God wasn't sovereign, if God could lie, if God didn't love us, if God wasn't good, we couldn't hold on to that promise in Romans 8, 28. But he is all of those things. He is all of those things. So we can be certain that Romans 8, when it says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who have been called according to his purpose, we can hold on to that promise even when we have no idea what's happening or why. If you can grab a hold of this truth and hold on to it, nothing can shake you. I want to be, and I hope you too, I want to be like Paul, who's beaten and thrown in prison for preaching, and responds by worshiping the Lord and rejoicing. I want to have that kind of confidence in God and His promises. Paul knew. Paul wasn't thinking, well, I, I don't know what God's going to do. I guess, you know, we're, we're in trouble here. Like, he was confident that God had him where he was supposed to be. So he worshiped. He worshiped. God's purposes cannot be thwarted by the enemy. The enemy is going to try to make you miserable. God's making you holy. People are going to sin against you. God is using it for His glory and your good. And so church, something I ask our youth group a lot is, what would your life look like if you really believed this? Right? You get a hold of this truth and you believe it, then nothing will shake you. You're still going to face pain, you're still going to face suffering and misery, you're going to face it, and you are going to make it. You can take joy and comfort and peace knowing that God is sovereign and has ordained this for your good and his glory. Are you with me, church? So as we get ready to look at these last verses in Romans 8, I think I've been clear in this, but just in case, I just want to make sure you understand uh, the Bible says nowhere that we're going to be free from suffering or pain in this life. It doesn't say that if if a preacher ever says that, you should run. It is not biblical. We will face trials and sufferings and even death. But when we understand that none of those things can separate us from the love of Christ, when we understand that those things are for our ultimate good and for God's glory, then we can rejoice and we can stand invincible. One of my favorite worship songs that we don't sing here yet because there's a lot of songs to work on. Um, it says, Our rest is in heaven our rest is not here, then why should we tremble when trials draw near? Be still and remember the worst that can come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. The worst that can come, if, if, if death comes, just brings us home with the Lord. Amen? So I want to read Romans, the last verses in Romans 8 here. So we're going to start in verse 31 if you want to follow along. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And let's just remember, it doesn't mean no trials or sufferings. It, it means the enemy's not going to win. No one can beat God. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, that's a lot of love. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, 
who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Church, no one can accuse us or condemn us before God. Jesus' blood covers us. The enemy, is he's going to try to accuse you, but he cannot bring a charge against God's elect. Jesus' blood covers our sins, and we are his. Verse 35, what, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Again here, Scripture is not saying we're not going to face tribulation, or peril, or the sword. It says for your sakes, for, for the sake of Christ, we're actually being put to death all the day long. So, it's not like if God is for us, we won't face any trials or sickness or death. No, that's, that's not what it's saying. But we are more than conquerors. Verse 37 says, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of those things can separate us from Jesus, church. They can simply hasten our journey home. Nothing will separate us from His love and our future dwelling with Him in heaven. Whatever you're facing right now, there is abundant hope in the Lord. He has not forgotten you, and he has not forsaken you. He will never leave you. The devil is not winning. He has already lost. So again, when you are faced with trials and sufferings, you're going to be faced with the choice. Are you going to lean into what Satan is trying to do? Lean into like, you know, pitying yourself and and why and poor me? Are you going to lean into that misery and discouragement and embrace it? Are you going to choose to lean into God and trust Him and His promises? Church, trust His word, believe Him, and hold fast. As the worship team comes back up, I want to close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I think fits this perfectly. He says, It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten him to his reward. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good." Happy is he who is in such a case. He is secure where others are in peril. He lives where others die. Nothing and no one can separate you, church. No trial or suffering. When it looks like the enemy's winning, when you're afraid, when you don't know what's going on, cling to the truth of God's Word. God says that before you were even formed in the womb, He knew you. And before you were born, He had already ordained all the days of your life. Amen?
So with that in mind, we're going to sing a couple of songs to close today, and I encourage you to sing out from your heart and verbalize the truth of what we saw in God's Word today, because we're going to sing that song again, Sovereign Ruler of the Skies, if you'd stand. <laughs>